Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. We do have an announcement that we want to make. We have created a Discord server for the podcast after people have expressed quite a bit of interest. So we will have that link in the episode description, both on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. If you would like to join, please feel free, feel welcome. We are planning lots of fun things, um, including kind of like scientific journal studies and also some occult studies based on papers that we read that we read kind of with like both historical basis and also maybe studies that have some occult relevance to them. So we'll have those journal clubs and also just kind of chatting about our research and the podcast. And you can give us ideas for shower thought episodes and just engage with us further there. So if you would like to join, again, the link will be in the episode description. This episode, we are going to talk about psychics and the paranormal. This is an episode that we've had on the list for quite a while, and Hanny was very excited to talk about it this weekend, so we figured that we would go ahead and bring it up. But before we do that, we are going to do our What Happened on This Day. I believe it is Fel's turn. I don't Fel's think it's turn? my turn, but it's my turn for it's now. okay. Well, we're going to do it. <laughs> we're giving it to you anyway. So Fel's going to talk about our What Happened on This Day, and it is currently July 4th. Okay, so on this day, Marie Curie was born. Uh, Marie Sklodowska Curie. I apologize to any anyone who speaks Polish out there. She was a Polish-French chemist and physicist who celebrated experiments on uranium minerals led to the discovery of two new elements. First, she separated polonium and then radium a few months later. With Henry Becquerel and her husband Pierre Curie, she was awarded the 1903 Nobel Prize for Physics. Later, she was also the sole winner of a second Nobel Prize in 1911, this time in chemistry. She unfortunately died of radiation poisoning from her pioneering work before the need for protection was known. Also, this was a a synchronicity moment (laughs) where apparently Marie Curie dabbled a little bit in spiritualism along with her husband. It more seemed like she attended reluctantly while her husband loved it but also for this what happened on this day i told them i i had a surprise so uh just just so we all remember okay obviously no one can see me i just pulled out a fife Brilliant. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to need some context for what just um, happened. So that's Yankee Doodle. <laughs> that was Yankee Doodle. So like, um, <laughs> <laughs> it was a song, a Revolutionary War song, because the Brits called us Yankees, and then they were like, yeah, we're going to embrace that term. <laughs> that's the, uh, the uh, that song. So I just thought it was appropriate. That was um, incredible. It's like a very excuse for me to break out my fight. Fantastic. <laughs> Great surprise. Just yeah, you both I was just like, surprised. What is she doing? Just so Henny remembers her place today. <laughs> oh, wow, shade throne. Shade throne. It's okay, I've got my tea safely behind my monitor, so she can't touch it. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to be nice to Henny and give her kind of the lead for this episode, since this is something that she's really interested in. Um, so, Hanny, if you want to go ahead and lead us off and get us started, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Um, so this week we're going to be talking about psychics and the paranormal. 
And um, I thought this was really interesting because the paranormal community is kind of a community that intersects a little bit with the occult community, but they're not exactly the same thing. So what, what do we actually think the term paranormal means? Um, what I found was um, a definition saying it denotes events or phenomena such as telekinesis or clairvoyance that are beyond the scope of normal scientific understanding. So that could, in theory, refer to most occult things, actually. But I would argue that the paranormal has more of a focus on things like ghosts, uh, psychic powers, and there's often also an emphasis on proof by uh, scientific means and sometimes pseudoscientific mean means. So um, I kind of wanted to bring this up because I think it's a really good example of how occult things have been investigated and maybe also an example of how not to design studies, but we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. I also wanted to ask you what you think your definition of paranormal would be and like what is the difference between that and the occult? I think paranormal to me are phenomena that happen outside of the ability for like scientific rigor, like rigorous scientific testing that might possibly explain occurrences that we've experienced but don't actually understand. And that falls in line pretty closely with the occult if you utilize that definition but i think maybe the difference is that one is about investigating the cause while the other is about utilizing those kind of energies and spirits and whatever you want to include in that for a particular purpose so one seems to be a little more active well they're both active in their own ways but one is more active on like an individual sense of like trying to better yourself and like also better your own life through kind of these paranormal like means Whereas the other is more just like this innate curiosity about trying to figure out like what is happening, if anything is happening, and then how it's happening. Um, that's kind of where I would distinguish, like how I would distinguish the two. Yeah, I pretty much agree on that end. Uh, I remember I have a friend who's like super into cryptids and she's very adamant that like cryptids and the paranormal are not necessarily the same thing. And I, w I would agree with that assessment. I think they tend to be pursued by the same like I think people who examine cryptids are also oftentimes the same kind of people who examine the paranormal but yeah I liked I like that assessment Astra of them of it's like paranormal is more about the curiosity around these things versus any sort of wanting the paranormal to like improve your life in some way I do think it's interesting though that there does seem to be a distinction in terms of like legitimacy of studying it through the occult versus looking at it more of like a paranormal like investigation kind of like method. I mean, theoretically, like we we look at the same kind of things, right? Things that shouldn't exist, but we think do. And it's interesting to me how one kind of seems to have a little more validity than another. Like in the occult, we talk about like angels and demons and like gods and deities and like mythologies and all of those kind of things. But when it comes to things like ghosts or, you know, spirit hauntings and all of that, there seems to be like a lower level of legitimacy for those claims, which is interesting to me because they think the two are rather interrelated. So then it's a measure of maybe the kind of, not to diss like anybody who goes after these things, but the kind of people and like the methods people use to study such things seems to be kind of what differentiates it from like a legitimate study versus a, I'm going to try and prove this with, with a bunch of like pseudoscience and poorly based like study and methodology. So then where do you guys think that psychics fall? Because I've actually seen them included in both communities, but I think they, they kind of span that line. So I was just curious what your thoughts were on that. I honestly think, and I'm going to get into this a little later, I think the, the lumping in of psychics 
with both the occult and the paranormal has its roots in spiritualism. And both of those things were extremely prominent in, like, specifically England and the United States. Just, like, it was prominent elsewhere, but, like, it it was never as big everywhere else as it was in the U.S. and England. So I think a lot of that sort of bled into our current occult community and and whatnot, which is where we see that cropping up. I mean, we talked a little bit about spiritualists in the New Age episode and then again how New Age sort of bled into the occult. And so I think a lot of that is interrelated. I also think the distinction needs to be made here between people who are actual psychics in the sense that we see within the occult and witchcraft community and grifters, which are things that we see more within the paranormal community. There's also that distinction. It's kind of why they fall into both categories. It's because you have people who like do actively practice this method of divination or just engaging with the spiritual realm. And then you have people who just do it to like make money off of others. So I do think there's a distinction that needs to be made there between the fact that one kind is more common in one group than another group. And that could maybe be an explanation as to why we see that. Yeah, I think I think I agree generally. Um, I've noticed I was looking into the history of this a little bit, and Phil has so much to say, which I'm very excited to hear. But mostly, um, I was finding that psychics in kind of antiquity were maybe not really the same kind of thing we think of today. So there were things like the Oracle of Delphi, which we talked about before, and the Pythia. So there's a story, for example, of um, General Croesus who believed the Pythia when after they basically predicted what he'd had for lunch, which was the tortoise. And he's like, right, okay, I, I, but I believe that they have divinator abilities because they were able to tell what I had. But then they told him that if he went to war with Persia, a great empire would be destroyed. And that empire was his own. So it's almost as if in antiquity, it was more about divination, sometimes cryptic symbols, often speaking from the gods, whereas psychics today are sometimes thought of as more, I guess, fortune telling, more mediumship, which we'll get into later. It's just a subtly different and maybe a little bit more explicit. I was looking into the history of this and I specifically focused on a different subset of history for for a particular reason, because like we've always had an innate desire to know and speak with the dead. But I think the idea of the psychic abilities or the mediumship coming from a deity or coming from an entity is more what you see in antiquity. Whereas like now it's almost like the psychic power is innate as opposed to like something is giving that to you. Yeah. So that I think is, is definitely a, a distinction with the modern age. I also feel like psychic power now it's, it has been called so many things. Right, you have like, because when we're talking psychics, you have the the mediumship definition, somebody who can engage with spirits in like a different realm. But you also have psychic in terms of like intuition, and you have all the different clairs that are involved in this as well. And so that term, I think, refers to so many things. It's very broad, but it's hard to kind of distinguish it specifically as one thing now, whereas I think back in ancient times, like older civilizations, it was a more like defined, this is somebody who's getting information from an external source that we can't, like we don't have contact with on the daily. So I do think like that, that terminology has been utilized many different ways. And a lot of it was influenced by like spiritualism and the new age thought and how we define it now. 
but I think we'll get into that actually. And that might be a great segue <laughs> to talk about the history. All right. So strap in, folks. <laughs> As I said, and we kind of talked about, we've always been interested in communicating with the dead and telling the future. That's We talked about this in like a lot of different <laughs> episodes. But the, the ferocity with which this interest happened was pretty much uh, unprecedented in the 19th century. And it was also very unique. What made it unique? What made it unprecedented? At this time, we talked about this in, a, in our New Age episode, we saw a massive resurgence or a new surgeons of new religious movements starting in the mid 19th century. To start off, we had the Industrial Revolution, which I've talked about before, had a, a massive influence in all domains, physical, mental, as well as spiritual and existential. The world was rapidly changing and people grasped to seek and understand the world beyond themselves, especially the afterlife. Because at this point in time, family life was changing. And for the first time, we saw the family size begin to shrink. Thus, it placed more of an emphasis on each and every child. And because the world was globalizing, we also saw diseases spreading, especially in the cramped and poor conditions of the cities that came about in the Industrial Revolution. Additionally, in a more global society, people began to come into contact with other religions, belief sets, and spiritual practices. So people were really desperate in a lot of ways to, you know, they were being isolated from nature. They were being isolated in a lot of ways from their spirituality, and this kind of saw almost a reaction of them wanting to dive even deeper. And also with diseases spreading and placing more of an emphasis on family members in general, people had this kind of desperation that wasn't being answered by the common religions at that time. So this all came on the heels of transcendentalism and romanticism, which provided a looser and less rigid religious framework and placed an emphasis on personal spiritual experiences. Both transcendentalism and spiritualism were influenced by early 18th century Swedish theologian Emanuel Swedenborg who interestingly enough was also a scientist and a a pretty prescient one too, who created a proto-theory of the neuron and the hierarchy of the nervous system, as well as examining the structure of matter itself. He also worked on several mathematical and mechanical theories and posited an attempted explanation of spiritual and mental events in terms of what he called tremulations, tiny vibrations. Sound familiar? (laughs) Talk about vibration so much, but it seems to be his idea of it might be where some of it comes from. Later in his life, around the 1740s, Swedenborg began to have visions and claimed to be able to interact with spirits while awake. It was at this time he journaled about the structure of the spirit world and how one passes from this realm to the next. So here is a quote from the Swedenborg Foundation. Swedenborg describes creation as made up of two separate yet coexisting worlds, the natural world and the spiritual world. The natural world includes everything you see around you. The spiritual world consists of the unseen realities that we do not fully encounter until after death, heaven, hell, and the world of spirits in between. Interesting point of note, Swedenborg also believed in multiple hells and multiple heavens. He, he believed that in the spiritual world, people had bodies, they lived in houses, had co- some sort of community, and were surrounded by a very, very vivid version of Earth. Basically, it, it also was like this idea of manifestation in some sense. If you thought something, it would happen in the spiritual world. So if you wanted, if you thought of someone, they would appear. Swedenborg describes a realm where the inner state of individuals are reflected in their surroundings and where all life originates from. Yes. Swedenborg was really, really fascinating. Hanny was looking into him a little bit and discovered that he coined the term correspondences, which we use all the time in the occult community. So he believed that these correspondences were, you know, very, he didn't say the words microcosm, macrocosm, but he believed that something on the physical world represented something in the spiritual world, which is, you know, microcosm, macrocosm, the what correspondences are. The more that 
I dived into Swedenborg, the more I realized how much he's not only influenced the secular world, but also the occult. I actually think a whole episode on him might prove beneficial. We could probably spend all day talking about Swedenborg. So I'll definitely include some resources in the description about him. Before I move on from him, because again, I could probably talk about him this entire episode. I just want to note in the 1760s, he claimed to have been in contact with spirits from Jupiter, Mars, Mercury, Saturn, Venus, and the moon, as well as spirits from planets beyond the solar system. That's pretty wild. That's pretty wild and also very unheard of. He believed in aliens, which was a very unique, a very like unique mindset for a theologian of the 18th century. Was he referring to spirits as in like in, in an alien sense or is it more just like spirits of the planets? Because like if you're if we're talking mm. about planetary magic, right? Like each planet does have a spirit. They're considered malefic in a sense, but that's not necessarily always true. So every single planet like does have a spirit and a corresponding archangel. I'm curious to know if it was spirit in terms of extraterrestrial life or if we're talking spirits as in the actual spirit of the planet in accordance to like yeah planetary magic so i do not think he was talking about planetary magic when i was looking into this he was also talking in the same time that he was like talking about communing with spirits from these places he basically said something along the lines of that he believes that god the creator has made that the that the other planets are inhabited by individuals that's like a very rough yeah (laughs) sorry what he said and also at that time they wouldn't have really made the distinction between like aliens and they wouldn't know what to call them Mm -hmm. that's why i think he said spirits but that's a a good point so thought that was interesting (laughs) yeah swedenborg very very fascinating person next up on the influential figures we have franz mesmer have you ever been mesmerized well you could thank franz mesmer for that term Mesmer also seemed to have some sort of proto-energy and vibration theory, which he called animal magnetism, which later became magnetism, which became mesmerism, which became hypnotism. Basically, animal magnetism was this invisible supernatural force shared by all things that could be transferred between and affect living things. He also experimented with energy healing in this way of like laying on hands. So like very much what we see in new age circles he was the forefather of hypnotism although that term was not coined until james braid came along and james braid was a a scottish hypnotist who introduced the uh, metaphysical and spiritual properties of hypnotism so around this time we also saw the reform movement so the reform movement was a time period from in the u.s from the 1840s into the early 20th century. People usually are referring to the 19th century though when they say reform movement. The reform movement is pretty much exactly what it sounds like, a reform of the status quo. This was around the time, I believe, of the Third Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening came, I I believe, with Mormonism. Someone please (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong. But there was like a lot of Great Awakenings and they all happened in the same area of New York. It was really odd. This was also the time of transcendentalists, beginnings of women's suffrage, a fashion revolution, Shakers, Quakers, various labor reforms and abolitionists. Many spiritualists were reformists and conversely many reformists dabbled in spiritualism. What is a Shaker? Oh joy! (laughs) The Shaker! Tis a gift to be simple, tis a gift to be free. That's a Shaker song. (laughs) I think they broke off from the Quakers. They were basically an ascetic cult. They believed in that, like, Jesus was coming in their lifetime. They also believed that, like, people shouldn't cohabitate. So, like, they had, I mean, that's why they died off, because they didn't have kids. So they didn't have men and women in the same areas, and they didn't have marriages, Um, there's a shaker commune that's like well it's no longer it's like now a historical site 
It was a lot of fun. If you're in the U.S., you should go visit it. It's it's fun. And they slept on like boards. Yeah, they were very weird. They were very aesthetic. So that was pretty much their their defining feature. They came out of this movement of wanting to reform some form of Protestantism. Yeah, the Shakers are a little nuts. The legend has it that on March 31st, 1848, the Fox sisters claimed to have made contact with a spirit who engaged through rapping noises, which was audible to witnesses. So the Fox sisters were famous or infamous, depending on who you talk to, spiritualists from New York. And this launched them into the spotlight. And really at this moment, the modern spiritualist movement took off. Today, the spiritualist movement is known very well outside of the occult community due to the fact that we regard it with heapings of skepticism and notoriety. And also, it's just fascinating. After the Fox sisters became a sensation, it quickly became apparent that demonstrations of the supernatural could be quite profitable. And so that's when the charlatanry began. Although the Fox sisters were also pretty well known to be fraudulent, this is when it was just the thing to do, was to be a spiritualist charlatan. Spiritualists employed the use of seances, automatic writing, hypnosis, spirit boards, and more. By the 1860s, spiritualism was not only a prominent movement, but a business venture. In America, it saw a massive uptick during the Civil War, as many spiritualists preyed on grieving families. In London, we saw the establishments of spiritualists and paranormal clubs, including the appropriately named Ghost Club, which I just, wow. They're like, what should we call this club, guys? And they're like, we'll call it the Ghost Club. This was dedicated to studying the scientific validity of spirits and mediums, and one of the most prominent members was Charles Dickens. It should not be surprising that he was involved in the spiritualist community, given... Christmas Carol. <laughs> Pretty much since its inception, spiritualism has been under heavy scrutiny from the scientific community, which led to a very interesting like cycle of skeptics becoming converts and members becoming detractors. One investigator who used his newly developed system of forensic methods to examine these phenomena uh, was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Magicians such as Harry Houdini spoke openly against spiritualism and mediumship. This makes sense given that magicians were inherently performative, would be able to understand the tricks that spiritualists employed. It would also kind of give them a bad rap. And to be tied up in this community that was, even at the time, kind of known for fraud was... Not something you you really wanted to be a part of. We could honestly do a several-part series on spiritualists. I mostly bring them up because their influence on the occult community and the New Age community specifically is undeniable. Many of our current understandings of psychics and mediums and even certain divinatory methods has its roots in spiritualism that touched nearly every corner of the U.S. In fact, some of the most prominent locations were actually rural middle-of-the-nowhere and and not urban, which I find to be quite interesting. As I mentioned, there was the ghost club that was trying to examine the spiritualist community and the scientific validity of spirits. Spiritualists themselves, ironically, benefited from certain newly discovered either scientific theories or equipment, things like Pepper's ghosts or photography, which was very new at the time. They loved photography. If you Google spiritualists, you usually get a bunch of photographs. Right before its decline in the 1880s and 1890s, although it did see a resurgence during World War I, that was a pretty short-lived research, I would say. Spiritualism also crossed paths with psychology, which allowed them to try to almost harden up their evidence and help them to learn how to prey on the subconscious, such as cold reading. Cold reading is basically, if you go to, oftentimes, psychics, they will read you and be able to give you the answer that you want or the answer that you are expecting based on how you are presenting yourself. Psychology helped spiritualists do this. 
they were they were very sneaky, very smart people. In 1882, we found we saw the founding of the SBR, the Society for Psychical Research in London. When put under scrutiny by scientists who understood their tricks, spiritualists performed how one might expect, i.e. failing to prove themselves as anything other than frauds. Early clairvoyance experiments were reported in 1884 by Charles Richet, Rickett, I don't know how he pronounced that. Playing cards were enclosed in envelopes, and a subject put under hypnosis attempted to identify them. The subject was reported to have been successful in a series of 133 trials, but the results dropped to chance level and performed before a group of scientists in Cambridge. So early parapsychology, the study of psychic phenomena, is truly a case study for study design, flaws, and controls. Pretty much everything we've talked about when addressing studies. Many spiritualists initially passed tests or got positive results when scrutinized. However, those same spiritualists then later were entirely disproven, either by being shown to not be able to score above chance or some of them even confessed to fraudulent activities. And certain people, like certain people who docked photographs, actually came forward and explained how they did them. Parapsychology and the remnants of spiritualism still persist today. Ghost shows, I would argue, are basically that. Uh, I believe now Henny and Astra will talk a little bit more about the various attempts to explain and study the paranormal going forward after the spiritualist movement. Before we get into how the psychic and paranormal community has been studied, um, we need to first define what we mean by psychic abilities, because Astra has kind of alluded to, it's really quite a broad spectrum, right? There, there are lots of different things that we can see as psychic. So what I've seen is that most of the psychic abilities fall under one of three categories, minds to matter, mind to mind or matter to mind. So mind to matter would be things like telekinesis, moving objects with your mind. Mind to mind would be things like mind reading, even things like clairaudience, so hearing things. And then matter to mind might be things like remote viewing or clairsentience. So this is when you can maybe pick something up and you can sense memories from it, for example. In the more investigative community, these abilities are often referred to as psi, Oh, that's spelled P-S-I, which confusingly is also a unit of pressure. But um, if you're investigating this, then that's something that you'll probably notice. I would say that um, psychic abilities also cross over with the sense of intuition in a more modern sense. I know that this is quite popular in the book Psychic Witch. I wondered if you wanted to comment on that, because that's not a book I've actually read, but I know you might have some thoughts. So I, I don't actually know the history of the terms of the different Claire's. I think the main one, people kind of came up with other ones like clairsentience. I'm pretty sure clairvoyance is the the original. Like, I'm pretty sure people used to just say that when they meant anything else. Oh, I can go over some of them. There's clairvoyance, which is clear seeing. Clairsentience, clear touch. Then there's clairaudience, which is clear hearing. Clairgustance, which is clear gust. That would be taste, right? And then there's clairsalience, which is clear smelling, I believe. People have kind of added to them. In a very interesting way. It, it, they usually mean either sensing like a ghost or something. That is originally where like that sort of mentality came from. Especially because the spiritualists were like super all about you were able to physically interact with ghosts. That's why they were huge, right? Like being able to hear the knocking at, at the door. The the Claire senses are like the way that they originally were is like you're able to hear it, but it's not actually making a sound. Like it's not making a physical sound. So that's kind of what, what the what the Claire senses were or are, I should say. I don't know why I used past tense. Maybe it was a Freudian slip about how I feel about this. <laughs> they appear to have been uh, created in the, you know, 19th century because of, of course they were um not like created 
I I want to say that like the idea of seeing beyond the physical realm is not new. That is definitely not new as a part of many things. But the idea of like clairvoyance specifically, that terminology uh, goes back to Mesmer and the early hypnotists. I honestly don't know how I feel about the Claire senses. I really don't. I change my opinion on them like every other month. Because I think there can be something about seeing or feeling or beyond the physical realm just from a mystic or a mysticism standpoint. But I don't think it's in the same way that it is often presented. I'm not sure if they are actually, people often, like in Psychic which they talk about this, psychic ability is a muscle that can be exercised. I'm not entirely convinced of that. Where would you say the intuition lies in this? Would you say it's something entirely separate or would you say it crosses over with this kind of realm? I think everybody, like intuition to me is that gut feeling that that you have about something. It is your body or your sense of saying, hey, something is off about this or this is something that I should do. I personally think that's kind of, it's a survival mechanism of sorts to ensure that we don't like throw ourselves off a cliff or anything like that, right? In my, like in my personal perspective, that's really where intuition falls. It's this idea of like, this feels like it's a bad idea and I can't pinpoint why and there might not actually be a reason but it feels like a bad idea. And that's kind of that like gut sense is where I kind of put intuition. And like when it, when I say like I'm listening to my intuition, I'm like I'm listening to my gut. My gut is like, you shouldn't do that. I'm like, okay, I probably shouldn't do it. I struggle because I do think that there is some ability to engage with the spiritual realm. Yeah, this idea that it's like a muscle of sorts, I don't really prescribe to that idea personally because I don't think that it's something that you can – necessarily trained because like the way that it's presented it makes it seem like it's this very tangible kind of interaction and I don't think that's the case and I've also just personally have had many experiences talking to individuals not like experiences but conversations I should you could say people like about their experiences and also just like being with individuals who claim to have these kind of senses where something will happen and then they'll attribute it to one of the Claire's and I'm like oh but here's a bunch of mundane reasons that explains what you experienced I have always been able to find mundane reasons to kind of explain away the psychic claim that people make and so for that reason I'm not convinced by it really at all but I do think there's kind of an innate understanding of maybe reasonings that we don't necessarily have like empirical evidence for but again i think that's really more of a survival mechanism that we were just coded with and i don't really think it's anything like really supernatural something i also just thought of kind of jumping off of that i think my issue lies when people claim that claire's senses affect something in the physical realm i think that's where I get wary. So I used to be super new age. I've talked a little bit about this. I used to be super new age. I read books about how to be a psychic and I read books about like psychics and I tried these experiments, right? And a lot of them were about like predicting something or like being able to sense that someone far away from you is ill. And like there could there could be something to that. I mean, I don't know. The mind is weird. <laughs> Things are weird. But I, uh, my problem is when, like, when people will almost use them of, like, like, kind of what they were trying to do to the spiritualists when they put the things in the envelopes and then ask them to try to predict 
or try to see what was in there and it gets to like remote viewing territory, which we're going to talk a little bit about, I believe. That's where I have issues when people talk about being able to not necessarily see into the spirit realm, but see like into the physical realm, just somewhere that they're not, or trying to figure out what a card someone has. Like I've seen exercises of people trying to like in the occult community not just the the new age tm community of people like being like test your intuition like people you see this on tiktok and be like test your intuition and you draw a card i'm like i don't think that's how that works mm-hmm. because we've seen time like since the inception of spiritualism we have seen time and time again even back then when they had terrible study design <laughs> that it's never better than chance never and there's there's some legis- legitimacy to this idea of, like if somebody else is in pain like that you care about like you'll feel I mean like twins right the whole discussion of twins and their ability to kind of sense things with each other like there have been studies done on that and to be totally honest I haven't like looked into it super intensely so don't quote me on like the legitimacy of study design or anything but like there like there is some discussion around like how those kind of things might have some scientific legitimacy to them. But again, I don't it's I don't think it's anything supernatural. I think it's just like you might have a connection to somebody or maybe if we this is a thought that I've had recently (laughs) Um, and I'm kind of still like throwing it up in the air and batting it around to see if I actually agree. But the idea that like anything can you express something similar to this as well. Like everything is connected energetically in some way, shape or form. And so this connection that you feel with another and like energetically speaking is in like energy as we describe it scientifically not necessarily supernaturally although maybe a bit of both i don't know but like everybody is connected in some way shape or form and so these feelings where it's like oh i feel like somebody that i care about is maybe in danger or in trouble or i need to go check on them like i think those maybe come from the kind of like connections that are formed but again i don't necessarily think that i would just like prescribe it strictly to supernatural and like clear sensing. I kind of think of it connections that like mushrooms and other like fungi create underneath the ground. Hey, or mycorrhizobial networks or uh, the hyphae are what they the extensions. Yeah, I kind of think of it like that, right? In terms of how this energy is like connecting everything, but that's a topic for another day. <laughs> and I also think it's important to note that people's intuitions, especially if they've grown up in a high stress environment, are often like uncanny like my own intuition there have been like several things this year that i've been able to predict before they happened but i have never once attributed it to me being psychic because i know that i'm just extremely good at reading other people and reading between the lines and just reading the things that people say without saying anything and it's uncanny but i know that it's just my intuition (laughs) well and that's like that's a traumatic response right like you it's it's literally a survival response it's not it's nothing to do with supernatural abilities it's just that you in order to survive you had to learn how to read your environment much more i guess correct accurately than maybe other people did yeah i have i have complicated feelings on this um, because there are certain things like having dreams which I've kind of found to be quite spiritually useful that I would guess you could kind of put in the sort of psychic realm that I do that's something that I do believe in I do, do engage in but yeah I think my definition falls in line with Fells where it's when you're trying to predict something that's in the in the real the physical world so kind of fortune telling um, predicting a card that kind of thing that's where my sort of faith breaks down a little bit. And I found it really interesting because the interest in psychic abilities permeated long, long past the spiritualist movement. And it even persisted into US and USSR governmental research during the Cold War. 
So one thing that is commonly referenced um, to kind of back up the idea of um, psychic ability being something that's been verified by science, right, but it hasn't really, is the Stargate Project. The Stargate Project was a long-running but now defunct CIA project seeking to investigate the usability of ESP, or extrasensory perception, for military applications. So this would be remote viewing for spying. And as Phil mentioned, remote viewing is when somebody who is psychic uh, sits and visualises somewhere elsewhere and they're able to describe what is present. So the culture of fear created by the Cold War was really important in this because there was this perceived need for psychonetic research. And this research was seen in a similar vein to other technological arms races like the space race. The Americans would hear word that um, the Soviets had all this amazing psychic research. And so they'd run off and they'd go, oh my goodness, we, we really need to get on this because otherwise, you know, we're going to be behind and they, they could be spying on us. And this kind of sense of fear, I think, added to people feeling the need to legitimise the studies. But let's actually look into the studies and how valid they were. Um, this was an interesting dive. So you can find the Stargate project release um, yourself online. It included the release of some 11 million pages of research. I didn't read all of it, spoiler alert, but I did look into some of the remote viewing. And some of it's really striking because, first of all, you can notice how few subjects there were. There were just two in one experiment. And they were given target locations and maps. They were asked to describe the area that was given to them on the map, as well as annotating on the map where particular aspects were. But when you actually look into what the subjects said, they'd say things like, okay, this is like a rooftop, okay, and this is this is where uh, light, this, and it kind of goes on in this sense. So it's very, very, very vague. The other problem is that these studies were not necessarily blinded. So obviously when somebody's describing something like that, and maybe the experimenter actually knows what the area of interest looks like, they're probably going to be quite eager to please, right? They're going to be maybe experimenters leaning in the other person starts to pick up on that and they start to give feedback so it's not a great example of a scientific study because the outcomes are so vague there's no blinding and the ability to kind of give information is confounded by the fact that the individuals are trying to please the experimenter did you guys look into this at all i looked into it and i was at first horrified that there were only two people in the study like classic worst design ever but also yeah with it was interesting with the locations and things that they were asking i was surprised that they because one of the easiest way to double blind the study would have been to just give coordinates right just give the latitude and longitude of a particular place and ask people and see if they can provide a description and without any kind of knowledge outside of that i was very very surprised that they didn't do it that way because that would have been a way to double blind the study and you would have gotten more accurate results so yeah i i read through it and i was just like this study design is very odd like <laughs> it's all it kind of like you said hanny it's like they're trying to push a narrative and so there was a lot of like suggestion that was kind of presented maybe not explicitly but like implicitly um suggested to the participants and that maybe led to the quote-unquote positive result even if you could even call it that i don't really think it was actually that supported but you know whatever something else i noticed when i was looking into the documents released was that a lot of the reviews would cite these amazing results and then you'd actually go and look at the results themselves and they'd be something like what we described the rest of the document would be things like talking about the results the Soviet got. However, if we go and look at what the Soviets did, there were people like Nina Kuligina, 
and um, she was influenced by the spiritualist movement very heavily and she was found to use magnets to enact tele telekinesis so there were definitely fraudulent events but unfortunately this sense of fear and this culture of fear was um, kind of driving people to legitimize results where there maybe weren't really any. Something that was really striking to me is this quote from Dr. Joel Lawson, who was once head of the Naval Electronic Systems Command, was, I have always believed that ESP is the only way to fight submarines. <laughs> um, and I just think that really speaks to how much paranoia there was. When, in fact, during that time, there was actually quite a lot of technology, which was would have been really helpful to fight submarines without the use of psychics. And finally, one quote I found, which I think sums everything up for me, we wish to express some concerns on the document's overall tone and composition. The document is based largely on reviews of uncritical material and consequently may have misleading interpretations and conclusions. A section or appendix that summarises laboratory research and presents constructive critical reviews of this controversial area would be helpful for achieving a balanced viewpoint. So basically, the reviews that they presented were mostly bluster. They were not consisting of very many actual verified scientific results. But these are frequently used by psychics um, to kind of back up the idea that they have something to sell you, um, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I do want to make a note really quickly to anybody listening that when when people utilize the CIA documents as like evidence for why something they say is true, I really encourage you don't have to read the whole thing. Like I get it. That's a lot of reading. But like, do be sure to look into it and critically evaluate the information that's being presented. Because in this particular case, right? We, they had their own studies, which were very poorly designed. They received data that what didn't really support what they were going for in the initial like question that was being proposed. And so a lot of the conclusions that were drawn here were based off of the questionable data that, that was derived from their own experiments, but also the data derived from somebody else's experiments. And it's this thing where like you cannot just accept that somebody else has done the study correctly and assume that their data and conclusions are automatically legitimate. This is why we say you need, we need to read things with a critical eye because unfortunately not everybody has good study design and not everybody takes the data and interprets it and comes to conclusions that are accurately portraying the data. And so when, when these kind of things happen, I really encourage you to go back and look at the data, look at the conclusions that are being drawn and critically evaluate whether you think it's a legitimate conclusion or not. Like you, you have the capability to do that. This is not something that needs to be left up to scientific investigators. Critically evaluate the information that you are taking in and don't just think that because it's by the CIA that makes it legitimate. Let's remember that this is the, the same government <laughs> that was like their evidence for someone being a communist was someone else called them a communist that was their evidence for that so let's remember that the government of the 1950s was insane <laughs> like they were super paranoid yeah if i had a dollar every time someone pulled out this study in a book or in a chat i would have so many dollars. <laughs> i would have so much money um yeah no but people need to stop Stop if people it's if so i've never come across a book that has utilized this study but if i did see it in a book i would automatically put it down like no we're not i'm not i've come across so giving it the time of day <laughs> so then the question comes to what are some of the proposed explanations for how psychic abilities actually work and handy i think this first one is maybe yours but this idea of mental state changes and we have a paper here. I didn't actually get a chance to review this. So if you did, do you want to give a brief overview? Yeah, sure. Um, I didn't read this one in great detail, but basically it was doing neuroimaging during somebody 
in a trance state. So if this was done, mediums who are in a trance state specifically compared to controls. And they were trying to say that, oh, the fact that they were in a trance state may have influenced their ability to perceive stimuli. And maybe that's a kind of more mundane explanation, if you like, for psychic ability, because it's kind of like what you were saying about the potential traumatic response, right? Maybe some people have a heightened sensitivity of stimuli around them, and that eventuates as them having greater intuition, for example. I didn't really find it very compelling, but the hypothesis of people not really being psychic per se, but having um, kind of heightened sensory abilities is something that I can sort of get on board with. Yeah, this is interesting. I was actually just looking through it um, really quickly, and it seems like they were able to attribute the mediumship abilities of people back to spiritual experiences they might have had when they were younger is what it looks like from what I was reading in this paper. And we'll link it below so you can look at this yourself. It seems that the all of the mediums had spiritual experiences when they were younger and that when they performed similar mediumship performed like performance on the word like before when they engaged in their in their medium abilities the same areas of the brain as these spiritual experiences when they attributed they were told them were also activated which is interesting and it kind of pulls into the discussion that we had i think it was last week which is that like recognition from your brain plays a very large role in how you see things kind of moving forward. This, it was act, it was activated once. And so when you do something again, it returns to the activation and maybe suggests that it's something more than it actually is. So the other, one of the classics, we mentioned this earlier, is, is cold reading, right? So this ability of someone to read you as you walk in and kind of get an idea of what your life might be like. Also just like reading you, reading your, your psychology, your reactions to things. All of that can give somebody the information that they need to provide a reading that seems semi-accurate. And I have had experiences with this, actually. Um, I did go into a psychic shop one time when I was in, I don't remember what I was, where we were going, but we were on vacation. I think it was in Virginia. And I went into a psychic shop. I was curious because this was at the time where, like, I hadn't fully decided that I wanted to get the cold, but I was, like, on the edge and I was like, well, maybe like a psychic reading will will sway me one way or the other. And unfortunately swayed me the opposite direction because that's exactly what happens. I walked in and my experience, like I asked questions and the answers that I got were incredibly vague. Like it was it was very clear to me that the answers that I was giving were based off of things that I had like said when I we were in the waiting room or even at the specific table that we were at. General things that people kind of in my generation, all of those kind of things that would be easy for someone to cold read were brought up in the actual reading itself. And so that swayed me very far away. I was like, well, this is just a little bullshit <laughs> because none of it was actually accurate enough. It's something that it's very like the skeptic's first choice, right? Like they assume that all psychic emotions sit down to a cold reading. And I think a lot of the time, unfortunately, people who scam and grift are using this technique where they, they can very, very carefully detect your kind of bodily cues and that's a skill in itself but there's not really anything supernatural to that it's just that they're able to detect follow when you are responding to their um to their responses or predictions there's a whole show on netflix called lie to me and it's all about being able to read people's micro expressions and then like utilizing those to figure out like how they feel in that show it's like forensic space but it's like whether or not they're lying like that has validity like there are people who actually study study micro expressions and like utilize them in that kind of environment so if somebody studied that like that could absolutely be used um, to help with cold reading i have um went it was what 
40, 44th Street, New York City, <laughs> back when I lived in New York. My sister and I, just for fun, decided to go to a psychic there. And uh, it was so interesting because I knew that she was cold reading us. And I could tell that she knew. Like, there was this weird animosity <laughs> between me. It was like, as uh, she was, like, reading my sister, I was reading her. And she could tell that I was reading her, reading my sister. It was a, it was a whole, like, it, it was pretty funny, actually, now. <laughs> Just thinking about her being able to tell that I was reading her, reading my sister. Um, it was definitely very, very interesting. I could see the way that she would, like, pause and the way that her eyes would sort of glance over my sister. And I could see her like mind working as she was saying these things. And I could see my sister like giving her the information that like she wanted. And when it came time for her to do me, it was very funny. There was like clearly this, it wasn't like actual tension. Like I, I was more curious than anything else, but it was a really funny moment because I was very, very good at not giving her anything. And I could like almost, it felt like someone was prodding me in a way. And I was very, very good at like not giving her anything or giving her false cues so that was kind of kind of fun experiment I did on my own I definitely don't regret it it was it was definitely interesting so that that was my experience yeah so that was a I had a very very unique experience with a, a psychic on on 44th street I love that you have the street name okay let's move into the next one so we're going to talk about electromagnetic fields so these were investigated substantially during the Stargate project but very little of note was actually found and the studies that did find some kind of difference with like remote healing really had no control group so the studies themselves actually also noted that the theory of how it worked was incompatible with our current understanding of electromagnetism as the proposed ionization charge would occur over the scale of microns rather than over distances i'll refer back to our episode where we talk about crystals to go like super into depth with that but i do before i get into this i do think it is important to differentiate some differentiate some terms here so electromagnetic fields also called emfs are caused by the motion of an electric charge and keep in mind, this is a very basic definition, but I'm not going to go like super in-depth here. A stationary charge, like if we were to remove motion, just a stationary charge by itself produces an electric field in the surrounding space. But the magnetic field requires the movement of this charge, hence the term electromagnetic field. Now, if you look into this topic, it's pretty rare to actually see people speaking about EMS and healing from a macroscopic viewpoint. And actually, much of the data focuses on ELF, EMS, which stands for Extremely Low Frequency Electromagnetic Fields. We're talking in the range of like 10 to 100 hertz, typically at about 15 hertz, or pulsed electromagnetic fields, which are pulsed low frequency electromagnetic fields used in many of these, you know, quote unquote, healing studies. So... I won't go into substantial detail here because the number of studies is actually quite astronomical. There's a very large amount of studies that have been done. However, <laughs> they often portray very conflicting data, different methodologies, different like so different frequencies and um, different strengths in terms of the, the magnetic fields, poor study design, and quite frankly, insignificant results. There is some legitimacy to the use of pulsed electromagnetic fields in bone healing as a non-invasive treatment because it has it's actually even been approved by the FDA and I'll include a bunch of reviews below on that but 
the thought there is that it has something to do with the calcium channels within our membranes. And so a, a flux in that has somehow led to calcium in the bones doing something to, to increase the healing rate. The information that I found there was not substantial. And so I don't really know how believable I consider that to be. It was actually very interesting. And I was doing a lot of research. There's a paper that came out in 2018 and another one in 2020 that looked at um, electromagnetic fields in relation to cytokines and their inflammatory response. And it almost seems like specifically if they looked at um, some adenosine receptors on the cell membrane, and they found that pulsing a low frequency electromagnetic pulse, I believe it was 15 hertz, I could be wrong, actually led to an increased abundance of these adenosine receptors on the cell membrane. And then that increased the level of signaling for the fibrous growth factor, so FGF2. And then that led to like enhanced cell propagation and growth and so on and so forth. That was interesting. Do I buy it? I don't know. I didn't read the paper like super, super closely and actually have time to fully analyze the data. But a lot of the like the more recent studies that I've found do suggest that if there is any effect, it's really mostly on the cell membrane and it's not super significant. Like certainly not enough to like heal tissue and like make it grow together faster. There's actually the majority of the skepticism lies within tissue healing versus bone healing, which there does seem to be some kind of legitimacy to that. But again, I didn't look into it too much. And also there's so many papers so many papers on it so you can do your own research there and just to clarify these are fields generated by machines like the the actual finding people who generate these electromagnetic fields like like they claim that's more the realm of the kind of spiritualist movement um more the realm of studies which have very very poor uh, methodology it's a huge jump to say that somebody can remote heal due to these fields which already have kind of limited evidence um yeah, absolutely. So yeah, again, like Kenny said, these are these are fields created by machines. And actually, it's, it is scientifically incorrect to say that human beings themselves can produce electromagnetic fields just like at your fingertips, because you we do not have the capabilities to cause like a sudden ionization of our own, like the, you know, the cells in our skin that contain these atoms and stuff like that is a microscopic, like a, we're talking like picometer, really, really microscopic level. And so we do not have the abilities to separate charge and then also cause it to start a motion and create this electromagnetic field by ourselves. We don't have the capabilities to do that. Now, there are electromagnetic fields in us, like the heart is based around an electron, like an electric field, right? With the pumping and the specific, I don't remember everything. This is back in physiology. My God, it was like seven years ago. The Kinji cells? Um, I think I might put that wrong. <laughs> yeah. I don't recall exactly what it was, but like there are like electromagnetic fields in our body that help things run, but like the ability to actually create like a field at your fingertips to do any kind of remote healing, it is woefully scientifically inaccurate. And if anybody uses that as like an explanation for how they're doing things, please run in the opposite direction because it is not, it's not possible. So the last one, the last hypothesis for how psychic ability works is heritability. So there's this idea that um, often these abilities are passed down in families and therefore that implies a genetic cause. And so I found um, a really surprising study which um, actually did some sequencing. Basically what they did is they screened 3,000 individuals via an online survey and they excluded those with delusions or psychosis. This took it down to 400, so quite a few people they excluded there. Um, after conducting some tests to um, select a final shortlist, 
they had 13 psychics and 10 non-psychics for a case control study. And these were all age, ethnicity and sex matched. They were all Caucasian women over the age of 37. The major issue, first of all, is that they conducted some tests to test the psychic ability of these psychics. The psychics were not significantly better than the controls at the tasks that they gave them, apart from remote viewing, where they were very slightly better. So that's that's already a problem in itself. But let's assume for a moment that perhaps their methods of screening psychic ability are flawed. So they performed exome sequencing. Exome sequencing just means they sequence the parts of the DNA which code for a protein. So um, it yeah, makes a protein which then goes in, into your body and it, maybe it's an enzyme or maybe it's a structural protein. It's a little bit confusing as they also mention non-coding sequences in the paper. We'll get to that. Either way, they looked at the sequence of the psychic group and they compared the genomes of that group with a large database and saying, okay, do we have any rare genetic variants enriched in this group which might explain their ability? The answer was no. They also found that the case versus the control had no difference in the protein coding region. So there's no protein that explains the difference between their supposed abilities. Finally, they did look at the non-coding regions, which is confusing, and they found a single SNP, so that's a single nucleotide polymorphism, in a non-coding region on chromosome 7, um, and it's in an area that basically regulates expression of DNA. But this is very, very likely to be due to chance. It's not an uncommon variation. There are only um, 10 controls, actually 9 after they um, one of them had crappy sequence data. So it's probably that this is just due to chance. It's a, It's hyped up very much by psychic associations like noetic but the actual quality of this evidence is is quite poor so i'd say on the back of this there isn't really um, good evidence for heritability it reminds me a lot of our discussion about the god gene right this this idea that we can we are innately connected to divinity through this this specific protein and in this one of those things right i think it returns you back to the idea that like it's entirely environmentally based and like how you're raised and that having an influence on like the way that you perceive having a kind of like psychic ability yeah i'm really glad that you found the paper it was very interesting so let's kind of talk about we mentioned a couple of times in this episode the issues with all of the experimental designs with studies done in this realm so let's talk about what kind of experimental designs maybe are typically applied to test psychic ability and how they could be improved. So it depends on the kind of ability being tested. The Stargate project was very concerned with testing remote viewing as they were interested in applying this for spying purposes. But a vast number of different abilities have also been investigated to varying degrees. Precognition, seeing the future, mind reading, psychokinesis, remote healing, and even electrical interference. So we'll cover a couple of these examples here. So one of them, which was very, very popular, um until it was uh, debunked later, was an experiment by Daryl Bem, and this was testing precognition with a memory recall test. So basically what they did is they took a memory recall test and then they asked people to guess what words they would be asked to recall, if I'm stating that correctly. So people were better at remembering words that they were asked to recall in the future, if that makes sense. Um, implying that they had some kind of inkling that they would be asked to recall them later. However, there were numerous studies that were done later which failed to replicate these results, so it's quite likely that this was either due to some kind of 
issue with the way the experiment was conducted or maybe even statistical anomaly. Another really popular experiment to test remote viewing is called the Gansfeld experiment. And these are, these are still happening, like this is an active area of research, despite the fact that they've been performed by spiritualists since about the 1940s and haven't really found, shown convincing results. Um, so a Gansfeld experiment is basically when you've got ping pong balls over your eyes um, to, to, cover, to cover any sensory input. White noise is playing. There's also a red light. Don't know what the role of the red light is. It's unclear. And basically this is a sensory uh, deprivation and you're left in that for 30 minutes. After that, somebody outside tries to mentally send you information to the individual undergoing sensory deprivation. So then they have to describe what they can see. The experimenter records it. In theory, they're blind to the information that's being sent. And at the end, the person who's been in sensory deprivation chooses from a selection of targets to evaluate. So they say, okay, what, what information was I sent? Um, but the issues are ping pong balls, shockingly, not very good at stressing out <laughs> sensory information. Um, there's often issues with improper blinding of the studies, statistical errors, poor randomization, so often the same targets would come up again and again. Sometimes even videos would be obviously replayed. Lord, please be quiet. <laughs> and basically a, a meta-analysis came out saying, oh, these are a great success. They found a, um, a hit rate, which is higher than chance, but they excluded all the failures to replicate. So this is again using statistics to get the result that you want rather than honestly analyzing um, all of the data available. And it's interesting that a lot of studies that are coming out now that are retesting um, studies that were done previously are showing that they aren't significant, like the one that we touched upon earlier in the episode. So many of these studies that showed hits, when they're being replicated, they're no longer being significant and it's resorting back to random chance, which is really kind of destroying <laughs> this reputation that that spiritualist previously held as like being legitimate i wanted to ask what your what your thoughts on are um what your thoughts are on how to properly design an experiment to test psychic ability how would you do this fell you, you too you're not a scientist but you're a scientist for this this podcast <laughs> Phil has to listen to his talks so she's a scientist in that regard I hope that's how you guys can confer upon me a degree. We should have a little graduation ceremony for me at our one year. <laughs> I just feel like it's so hard because, like, I see here that there's a spiritual shower sh shower thought. If we assume all claims made by psychics are true, is it actually possible to run a blinded trial? I thought that was that was funny. I mean, you'd have to get a diverse amount of people. And I feel like who's running the study determines a lot about its outcome in this situation. Because we saw with the spiritualists that they would often, when they were tested by people who were believed them, were inclined to believe them, they would often skew towards the positive. Or like being like skew above random chance. But when they were later done by skeptics, especially those of like, Cambridge <laughs> like they would then fail so I think it depends too a lot on who's running the tests because you, then you run into the issue of you don't want the psychics to cold read the te the, the people who are who are giving the test uh, which could be a very legitimate concern god I don't even know where where you would begin it, you would probably you'd have to separate each sense you couldn't just do all of them all at once I feel like clear sight Remote viewing would probably be the easiest one to test. Have someone like in that corner who's like able to actually like t say what is happening over there. But 
again, I feel like it would be it would be really hard to tell the difference between someone cold reading or random chance. Unfortunately, I do think that the clear senses and kind of psychic ability in general is one of those things that I don't know that we can study and study well um, just because of the nature of what it is. I do think like Fels that if we were going to design something, it would need to be for one very specific thing. Um, and it might be useful if possible to have the experimenter, the one who's recording the data um, from both groups be somebody who's kind of in the middle. So somebody who is both a scientist, but also doesn't necessarily fully disregard the spiritual side of things. That way we can reduce maybe the amount of bias from the experimenter. But again, yeah, the other issue is like, there's really no way to necessarily kind of figure out like who actually considers themselves a psychic in terms of like from like the occult and more like the spiritual side, like we're saying, versus people who are just like psychics in the street and, you know, doing their thing to, to get money. And so in that regard to kind of evening out the playing field of like what we're defining as psychic would be really important. Also from the groups of people like who we choose from, would all, there would also need to be kind of a vetting process there. And even then, I don't think you would get rid of everybody who is like a fake psychic. Reproducibility is a big one. I like if you do the experiment once, you better be doing it like five, t- five times. And if you get significant results, like then I think you can say something. But yeah, I mean, I really like the experiment that we talked about. I don't remember what episode it was where someone like, I think it was psychics. They put their hand over another person's like feel their aura. That's right. And they found it was random chance. Like actually the way the study designed was like relatively well done in my opinion with a couple of like things we talk about. But that's like, I don't know, that's one of the better ways to do it, I think. Like you just really have to kind of leave it up to random chance. And I think it's hard. Again, this is one of those things that I'm not sure there there is really a very good way to study it. Um, Is it something that should be studied? I don't know. I think it's hard to do. Hanny, do you have any thoughts? If we don't study it, how are we going to stop the submarines? <laughs> um, no, I guess I'm thinking it, the problem for me would be like standardized outcome measures. So what kind of things would we be able to to measure and quantify? So I guess I would be thinking about like mind reading, for example. Maybe you could test that by blinding somebody, giving them so, so that they were given an image which was unknown to the experimenter. And then somebody through a glass panel is able to look at them and maybe raise up what they have, like what they think the other person has. But again, it's it's really difficult because I think that in a lot of the experiments I've seen, psychics have been quite critical because they've said, oh, well, this, this experimental technique was too sterile. I wasn't able to use my abilities because I felt too nervous or, oh, I, was, I, I wasn't able to interact with the person and, and I need to do that. So, yeah, it's really, really hard to test because... When we're trying to get rid of these variables which could contribute to things like cold reading, we're also taking them out of an environment where they would normally be doing their readings. So yeah, I don't I don't know that it's something that is um is easy to test. It's an interesting thought though, and I'd really be interested to see what um our commenters have to say about it. That in and of itself though, like the need to be the need to be like with somebody when you are like doing a psychic reading like that to me just kind of perpetuates the idea further right that it's not it like truly isn't actually psychic there are other things happening the ability for somebody to cold read somebody being able to pick up on kind of these like micro expressions or anything that they might be doing and so it like it's almost like if you can't if it doesn't perpetuate itself in in a scientific study and you absolutely have to engage and like interact with somebody to have this kind of ability like that really calls into its 
legitimacy again, in my opinion. I, I do like your idea of maybe like having them pick up something and if the other person picks up the same thing, you know, seeing if that like build that like psycho what I don't even know what to call it, player sentience maybe. Like that would be a really interesting study to test. I'm gonna see if it went above random chance, but I don't know. Especially especially, especially because there are a lot of psychics who claim they can do work without physically engaging with people. And so they say it, they'll be like, yeah, like I energetically connect myself to this person and I'm only able to do, or like then I can, you know, do this reading. And it's like, if you can do that, then why doesn't it work in this other setting, which is the same thing. You can still energetically connect yourself to said person. It's like, if it works in this way, why shouldn't it work in this one? Like, if that is your excuse, then explain the discrepancy. Um, yeah, so if you are following us on Instagram, I invite you to uh, join us with your scientific study design to test psychic ability. Because <laughs> I think this is really hard to um, hard to design and it would be really interesting to hear your thoughts. Okay, um, I think that's all we have for this episode. It is a bit longer, so sorry about that, everybody. But let's go into final thoughts now about what we think about psychics and the paranormal. Um, I can start, I guess. So I'm not convinced um, for all of the reasons I've kind of stated in the episode. I There are people who believe in it wholeheartedly, and I think it's totally fine, um, kind of whatever works for you. But I do think that we need to be cognizant of the influence that our community and environment and the way that we are raised has on our abilities to, I guess, read other people and be intuitive and have these kind of, you know, quote unquote abilities that seem supernatural, but really are just kind of survival mechanisms that we have learned over time to just survive in the world around us in our environment. That's kind of where it comes down to me. And it's not that I don't believe in like the spiritual realm because they do, because I interact with the spirits like in my own practice. But I think sometimes the way in which psychics suggest things is not accurate to the way that it's actually done. And it can be very misleading when I think many of the these senses are actually just like physiological manifestations of trauma and things we've experienced in the past. I don't I don't want people to come away from this and think that I'm like totally knocking all psychics or, or mediumship or like Claire abilities. I just again, like we see with the new age, I just struggle when people try to prove them because I don't think they are provable. i just be frank. I don't think they're provable. <laughs> I don't think they will ever be provable. I think we get into hairy territory once we start trying to see how these interact with the physical realm. I think there's validity to them being, you know, worked in the in the spiritual realm or in like a, in sort of a trance and, and for spiritual gain. But when they start getting to like energy healing or seances, like once we start getting into, into that territory i think it can get uh real hairy real fast uh, the spiritualists did a lot to uh ruin the lives of people and i think people are are pretty wary about that because of just how how bad they were and kind of how much damage they did to communities <clears throat> including their own ironically so that's that's my takeaway i i definitely do believe there is some merit to like seeing beyond or hearing beyond but i don't think it's a provable and i don't think it's something that can be like like i don't think that you can have a prophetic well generally i don't think that you can like divine the future <laughs> from being a psychic i just i just don't think that that that's how that works 
So that's that's my final thoughts, I guess. Yeah, I'm on a similar kind of page to you. Like, I don't dismiss everything completely out of hand. And I think there are certain things like prophetic dreams or like journeying and trance state, which I, I'm more likely to kind of buy into. But that's because they don't have these associations with um, pseudoscience, basically. I think it's really telling that the parapsychological community are still trying to use the same kind of experimental design that they were using back in the 1940s, and they still haven't proved it. They still, they're still having issues with replication. Um, and so I will wait and see if there is anything more convincing in that realm. But for now, I think that the science of um, psychics and the paranormal is uh, a no for me. All right. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Thank you so much for listening. But until then, we will see you next week. Have a great week, everybody.